Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. I have a few announcements to make. Uh, to get your CME credit, you can text YXWV. It's up on the wall. Text that at any time uh, during or after the talk, and you will uh, get your credit electronically. Um, secondly, that there are adult short center rounds today, and that's from 12 to 1 in Auditorium H. So the presenters are Deb Cantlin and Margaret Emens, and they're talking about when have we done enough when it feels like we are working harder than our patients. So uh, an interesting lunchtime talk. I encourage you to go to Auditorium H to uh, see that. Our speaker today, Dr. Joseph Hill, has declared no uh, potential conflicts of interest, and he will be introduced to us today by our Center Director for Heart and Vascular, and, and uh, so Mark Krieger is coming up. Mark is the Anna Goodlick Huber Professor at Geisel. He is also a Professor of Medicine and Surgery. Uh, and Mark, come and tell us about today's guest. <coughs> Thank you, Rich. Good morning, everyone. It's an absolute delight for me to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Joseph Hill, who's a good friend and, and colleague of mine for many years. He is a professor of internal medicine and molecular biology uh, and the James T. Wilson Distinguished Chair in Cardiovascular Disease, the Chair of uh, Heart Research, the Frank Ryburn Chair in Heart Research, and Director of the Harry S. Moss Heart Center at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Hill began his training at Duke, where he got uh, both his MD and PhD degree. He then went on to do uh, internal medicine uh, residency and cardiovascular medicine fellowship at Brigham Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston. Went to uh, the University of Iowa, where he was on faculty for five years, and then in 2007, assumed his current uh, position of Chief of uh, Cardiology uh, and Director of the Moss Heart Center at uh, UT Southwestern. He's had an incredible career, so I'm only going to touch upon a few of the many accolades and awards he's had. Uh, he uh, was President of the Association of Professors of Cardiology, President of the Association of University Cardiologists, he serves on the Board of Directors of the Heart Failure Society of America and has been Chair of the Academic Council of the American College of Cardiology. He's received the Research Achievement Award from the International Society for Heart Research and uh, the Dr. Arnold Katz Achievement Award from the Sarnoff Cardiovascular Research Foundation. Presently, he serves as Editor-in-Chief of the American Heart Association's flagship uh, journal, Circulation. It's an absolute pleasure to introduce Dr. Hill, who will be speaking on renovations in the House of Medicine, past, present, and future. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Uh, to, I have many friends here, and uh, I gave a talk yesterday and I said that, you know, I, I, I gave a speech at the German Cardiac Society a few months ago and they had all these nice things to say about me. But the guy who introduced me said, but you know what, his wife is really way more interesting than he is. <laughs> <laughs> 
And my wife happens to be Elizabeth's sister. I'm happy to tell you. So I would like to uh, direct this talk, uh, hopefully to everybody, but to some extent toward the early career people, to talk about um, where cardiovascular medicine has been, where it is now, and where I, I will speculate that it, it may be going. I think we all know that non-communicable diseases around the world have outstripped communicable diseases. This happened last year in India, one of the last countries where now it's, it's held that communicable diseases, even in, in that uh, resource-challenged environment, have now outstripped communicable diseases. Nevertheless, cardiovascular disease has continued to be the number one killer of men and women around the world. We will see here that the face of cardiovascular disease in the West is different than it is in developing countries. It has different manifestations. It is still the number one killer of men and women. Many women don't recognize this. The number of women in this country who die of breast cancer is one in 40, four zero. The number of women in this country who die of cardiovascular disease is one in four, 10 times greater. As such, it is a global problem. Cardiovascular disease knows no boundaries. The notion that it is a, a phenomenon in the developing world is long since over. And in my role as editor-in-chief of Circulation, we have positioned ourselves as, with a global footprint where we have 50 editors on the team and we have them positioned in 15 different countries. We have a third uh, in Dallas where I live, a third in the U.S. outside of Dallas, and another third in uh, 14 other countries in 10 time zones because cardiovascular disease, again, has a footprint uh, literally, literally around the globe. So if we turn our deck chairs toward the past, this is 20 years ago, 2008, the year 2000. The number one killer of human beings on the planet was high blood pressure. If we lump tobacco and cholesterol and call that atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, that's the number two killer of homo sapiens on this planet. If we jump over malnutrition, which has largely been eliminated, the number three killer on our planet is diabetes. That was 20 years ago. I will submit to you that this one in the last 20 years has been slipping down, which is good news, and this one is climbing up such that I will speculate that diabetes and metabolic-related uh, pathophysiology will outstrip atherosclerotic disease. It hasn't happened in the developing world. It surely has happened here in the, in the developed world. This is age-standardized death from cardiovascular disease, uh, more or less at the present. Red is bad. You can see that uh, in, the, in the West, we have tamed many of the acutely lethal manifestations of cardiovascular disease, and in the interim, it has emerged in the developing world as a, a phenomenal scourge. So let me just take one minute to philosophize, if I may. As physicians, we, every day we try to cure disease. We want to take it off the patient's problem list so that associated morbidity and mortality is eliminated. However, in internal medicine, and certainly in cardiovascular disease and internal medicine, broadly speaking, there are rather few diseases that we can cure. We can cure a bunch of infections. We can cure some cancers. I can only think of one or two cardiovascular diseases, Wolf, Parkinson, White, for example, that we can cure, make it go away. So if we can't cure a disease, we almost always have to settle for the next best thing. If we can't cure it, maybe we can transform it into a chronic disease that can be managed for a lifetime, for decades, and we'll, we'll talk about that. When I was in medical school back in the 20th century in a room somewhat like this, as a first-year medical student, I heard two lectures 
um, I remember very well about a syndrome that was emerging in Northern California in Haiti where young men were having their immune system just shut down. They developed unusual cancers and crazy infections, and they died. It was called the Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. Nobody had the first idea what was the cause. It was a death sentence. If you got it, you were dead in weeks. Now, as of 2017, 50% of people with HIV-AIDS are over 50 years of age. We haven't cured HIV-AIDS, but it's been transformed largely into a chronic disease that you can manage over the course of decades. How does this look in cardiovascular disease? In the 1960s, in the advent, before the advent of the coronary care unit, if you had a heart attack in the hospital with a nurse standing beside you, the likelihood you would not go home was 30% before we had CCUs. If you had that heart attack in your living room, it was probably 80 or 90%. With the advent of the coronary care unit with defibrillation, hemodynamic monitoring, and beta blockade, over 15 years, that in-hospital mortality was amazingly cut in half. In the 1990s, with the ad advent of antiplatelet therapy, thrombolytic therapy, percutaneous coronary intervention, it was cut in half again. Now, in most hospitals in the U.S., in-hospital mortality from myocardial infarction is somewhere around 3%. It's been cut in half, it's been cut in half, it's been cut in half. It's, um, it's amazing, the amazing success. Now, these people that previously in the 1960s would have died are surviving, thank goodness, and they're going home with an injured heart, and that's why heart failure is one of only two cardiovascular diseases that is increasing. Heart, the prevalence of heart failure is exploding around the world. If we take a, if we take a look a bigger, at a bigger picture, not just in hospital mortality from myocardial infarction, Age-adjusted mortality in the last 50 years from cardiovascular disease has dropped an astonishing 75%. Amazing successes thanks to many advances, targets, and drugs, and devices, and approaches, and of course, awareness of blood pressure and smoking and lifestyle-related things. All these things have led to dramatic improvements. So these people who previously were dying, now they're surviving, in other words, we're transforming cardiovascular disease from a disease we can't cure it, but it's becoming progressively a disease that can be managed over time. I will tell you that if we took this out five, the next five years, I don't have a slide for that just yet, it flattened out for the first time in 50 years, that has flattened out. In other words, the improvements have, have uh, attenuated. And in the last two years, it's actually tipped up. Two years in a row, it's actually tipped up for the first time in 50 years. We don't know why, but I will speculate that it is the form first of what we'll talk about later, and that is the effects of obesity and metabolic stress on, 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 our, uh, on our system. So this, this, this amazing improvement now has ceased for the time being, and actually we're backing up now for the last two years. As a result of all this, the likelihood of going home without heart failure in the 1970s if you went home and if you survived your heart attack, it was probably a small heart attack. And hence, you are not likely to develop heart failure. But over the subsequent uh, decades, the likelihood of going home and staying free of heart failure has diminished because, thank goodness, because the, these people are staying alive and developing a new, a new manifestation of heart disease called heart failure. Now, in the developing world, this looks very different. The, the incidence and prevalence of myocardial infarction is exploding in the developing world. And that's one of the reasons that in my role in circulation, I've gotten very involved with uh, China and, and soon with India uh, around this. 
uh, 60% of the human race lives in Asia, and this is what is affecting them. They are the uh, one of the hospitals that I, I, I collaborate with over there. They do 100 PCIs a day. So uh, the, the volume of cardiovascular disease is absolutely uh, astonishing in, in much of the developing world. So for the early career people, I urge you to skate where the puck is going because the practice of cardiovascular disease in 2018, I've showed you, is different than it was 20 years ago. And I will suggest to you it'll be different again 20 years from now. Let's see if we can speculate about where that, that might be. This, uh, um, sadly, is the future of cardiovascular disease, I, I, I'm afraid. At least it is in Texas. Maybe you, you athletes on the ski slope, maybe it's, it's different here. So let me show you this. This is obesity and this is diabetes in the United States in 1994. Okay, and this is obesity. This is not, this is not overweight. This is a BMI greater than 30. And you can see that in 1994, there were several states where obesity rates were somewhere in the range of 14, 15, 16%. And I will ask you to track this with diabetes because those two things move together. That's 1994, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, 2000. In six years, now there are still a few states that have obesity rates in the 14 to 18%, but now a bunch of them have moved into 18 to 22, and even some of them now are above 20% in obesity rates over the course of six years. 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005. Only Colorado is the sole holdout, the sole holdout in the 14 to 18% range. You can see now that there are relatively few states in the 18 to 22% range. Now a great part of our nation has obesity rates in the 22 to 25% range. And look at how diabetes tracks with that. 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010. Still Colorado. <laughs> but you can see that there are now essentially no states in this range here, and virtually the entire nation is upwards of 22%, including some, some states that are above 26%. We can stop there, or I can do just a couple more. 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014. That's the last I have here. Okay, that was 20 years. And you can see that the face of our nation has changed. You can't, if you sit on an airplane and you watch people parading by you toward the back of the plane, you, you see this all day long. And so the, the face of our nation, the face of the patients that we take care of has changed over the, just over the last 20 years. It has, this, as you're aware, leads to dramatic cardiovascular complications, orthopedic complications. There's now you know, type 2 diabetes in elementary school. And it's, it's all changed before our very eyes in the last the last 20 years. Just to summarize that, you can see that the, our, the profile of our nation has changed and diabetes has, has emerged as a, an, an enormous scourge. So sadly, this, is, this, I'm afraid, is the face of our nation. And, and I'm not a native Texan, but I've been there for a few years now, and, and we, we definitely do our, do our obesity pretty well down there. This is the the uh, rise in diabetes around, around the nation, with which you're, you're all familiar. Sadly, this is not just a U.S. phenomenon. This is a worldwide phenomenon. This is men and women, 1980-2008. This is obesity in men in North America that I just showed you. But you can see it is now everywhere. I mentioned this yesterday. It was an article in the New York Times six months or so ago 
about uh, Brazil, where malnutrition used to be a, a terrible problem. And the company Nestle decided to get on board with that and started pumping uh, vitamins and minerals in all their foods. And by the way, selling Kit Kat bars and, uh, and uh, Coca-Cola in, uh, in the jungle. And so obesity in a country that 20 years ago, where malnutrition was the problem, now, even in places like that, it has become obesity. I'll also point out that we were mentioning about China. This is what obesity looks like in China. The uh, prevalence of diabetes in the United States with this much obesity is 14%. The prevalence of diabetes in China with this much obesity is 14%, the very same number. The prevalence of pre-diabetes in China, a country of 1.4 billion people, is 40%. 40% of 1.4 billion have pre-diabetes. For reasons we don't understand, people of that ethnic heritage, Han Chinese, it only takes that much obesity to trigger metabolic dysfunction and diabetes. That's a, a, a riddle that has not been worked out. It needs to be. People are starting to focus on this and, and, and try to understand it, but we, we, we don't be, begin to understand it. I, um, one of our editors is in Beijing. He's a dear friend of mine, a very prominent electrophysiologist there. And he, he told me, I, I'll never forget, he told me, he said, Joe, when I grew up, I had meat twice a year. Now I have it twice a day. You know, I used to ride a bike, now I drive a BMW. You know, it, it, there are no more bikes in Beijing, right? It's all Audis and BMWs. And so they have learned from us. They've, you know, they're eating a, a diet that is calorie rich and they're not exercising like us. But sadly, they are predisposed for reasons that we, we don't understand. Hypertension is another global manifestation of cardiovascular disease. This is year 2000, where red is bad, and uh, you can see that in the U.S. we've been relatively stagnant. They've made nice progress in Canada and in South America, but you can see now hypertension has spread around the world, even into Africa. It's estimated that 1.4 billion people in this country and this world have hypertension, and only, only a percentage of them know it, of the ones who know it, only a percentage of them are on therapy, and the ones on therapy, only a small percentage are actually controlled. It is, a, it is a problem that we understand very well. We have an armamentarium replete with ways to treat hypertension, but for whatever reason, we don't. And I, I mentioned this yesterday, that I was standing in a CCU in, uh, in China, and I turned to the doctor next to me, we were talking about this, and I said, how much does lisinopril cost in China? How much does it cost in this country, a nickel or something a day? You can get it at Walmart for $4 for a month. He said, well, it's $2 a day for lisinopril. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And I, I, one, of, one of my editors, a friend of mine from Germany was with me, and I, and I said, how much does it cost in Germany? He said, it's, you know, a nickel, two, two or three uh, cents. And to make a very long story short, I ended up commissioning a, 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 uh, an economist at Johns Hopkins who studies this. And I, I got on the phone with him and I said, oh my God, is this true? He said, yeah. He said, everybody in the economics world knows this, that some of these drugs that are dirt cheap in the developed world are ridiculously expensive in the developing world. So he wrote this up in circulation, if you want to pull it up, um, where he took the five most, the mo five most commonly prescribed antihypertensives in China, lisinopril, amlodipine, and I can't remember the other three, the five most commonly used, found the lowest price in China, compared them to the U.S., the highest price he could find in the U.S., and, of course, adjusted for gross domestic product. 
And the ratio of price in China versus a price here was ranged from 1.5x to 6.5x, more expensive in China than, than here. And th this article, again, if you, if you pull it up, um, he speculates as to why that is. First of all, people in China get their medicines from uh, hospitals. There have been 800 million people in the last 20 years who have moved from rural China into the cities, and so the hospitals are overwhelmed, dramatically overwhelmed, and they get their medicines there. Turns out if you want a refill for lisinopril, you stand in line all morning and get it you know, uh, by standing in line. Um, and the hospitals are overwhelmed, and the government underfunds them, so they have to make up their resources somewhere, and so they upcharge on their medications. And very sadly, many physicians are financially incentivized to write for prescriptions that are expensive. It turns out the government is now aware of that, that latter part, and apparently working on that. It's a shameful thing. But they, will, they, they are incentivized to write for lisinopril, which is expensive, as opposed to captopril, which is, which is dirt cheap. And hopefully the government in, in China um, has uh, awakened to that and is addressing that. So what, what does... Uh, what does the future look like in, in the reality? The reality is that I've just shown you over the past 20 years that the face of our nation has changed and the face of our species around the globe has, has changed. Where, where do you think, it, where, where might it be going? My dear, my friend and, and mentor Eugene Braunwald said to me a couple years ago, the thrombocardiologist of the 20th century will be replaced by the diabetocardiologist of the 21st century. And like most things that he says, I think he's right. <laughs> So this is a paper that was uh, published in The Lancet uh, not so long ago. This is the probability of dying for women before the age of 80 around the world. The redder you are, the worse you are, okay? So you can see the probability of dying of non-communicable diseases. This is women before the age of 80. You can see is relatively controlled in the developed world, very different in the developing world. And, uh, and I figured I gave this talk in China where, where these, are the, these are each of the different countries on the planet. There's China, where the probability of dying from non-communicable disease before the age of 80 in women is 40%, and they are improving. There's a, there's a World Health Organization has a goal of reducing that by 30% by 2030. They are heading in the right direction, but they're not on track to achieve that 30% reduction. This is us. We are about 10 points lower, but we are stagnant in the U.S. We're not improving. Which countries are doing the best job? Japan, South Korea, Spain, France, and Switzerland down here, doing a fantastic job. Who's doing the worst? Afghanistan, Yemen, and Africa. So the, the spectrum is dramatically different. This is for women. For men, it looks like this. Everything is 10 points worse for men, and you can see that, again, in the developing world, this, pro this problem has, has exploded. For men in China, it's about 10 points worse. They are making some progress, but again, they're not on track to achieve that 30% goal by 2030. We, we are about 10 points better, but we're stagnant, similar to what we saw for women. The countries that are doing the best job, Japan, Iceland, Switzerland, Australia, the countries that are lagging behind are North Korea, Moldova, and Mongolia. These are World Health Organization data. What are those non-communicable diseases that everybody's dying of? Cardiovascular. This is cardiovascular disease around the world. 
What are we doing about this? Well, industry has awakened to this. Look at this. Everybody knows this. Look at the number of antihypertensives we have. It took us about 60 or 80 years to get all these drugs in our armamentarium. It took us only 10 years to develop even more drugs targeting diabetes. Industry is aware of this. They've picked up on this, that diabetes and cardiovascular disease is where the future is. And now we actually have more drugs to treat diabetes than we do to treat hypertension, unbelievable, which is, which is good news. And for the cardiologists in the room, I will, we all are aware that much of diabetes is actually moving into our space where, for example, SGLT2 inhibitors, which don't really do much for diabetes, they sure are good for your heart. So diabetes drugs are, in fact, and some of them are emerging as cardiovascular drugs, uh, mechanisms still waiting to be, uh, to be worked out. I talked about this yesterday that one of these manifestations for this is heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which is um, a syndrome with which you're very familiar, a, a, a presentation with heart failure, but with an ejection fraction uh, greater than the arbitrary cutoff of 50%. It is a problem that now outstrips heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. It is a con confers uh, a terrible toll on individuals and on society and on healthcare expenditures. Um, all of the drugs that have been that we use every single day in HEF-REF patients with a reduced ejection fraction, ARBs, ACE inhibitors. Um, uh, beta blockers, digoxin, and so forth, every single one of them is neutral in HEF-PEF, even though HEF-PEF is just as bad for you as, uh, as HEF-REP. HEF-PEF has a similar mortality to pancreatic cancer. We are, our armamentarium is replete with numerous ways to treat HEF-REF. Drugs, devices, uh, transplant, mechanical, circulatory support. Our toolbox for HEFPEF is completely empty. That's one of the things that uh, we are working on in, in my lab uh, to try and address this uh, issue. Cardiovascular disease and ischemic manifestations has not gone away. This is a famous Frank Netter diagram. This poor gentleman stepped out of a restaurant last night. That's how it felt last night after dinner. <laughs> he dropped his cigarette right there. You see, poor guy, he's, and he's having a myocardial infarction. So here he is on the street where his coronary is occluded, and he races to the emergency room where you give him beta blockers and nitrates and oxygen and morphine, and you open that coronary artery, thereby preserving tissue, PCI salvaged myocardium. It's important to recognize that when that coronary, that, uh, that infarct-related artery is opened, the injury response is not aborted completely, but rather a new injury response ensues called reperfusion injury. When we treat a heart attack or a stroke, everything we do focuses on about half, this about half the injury is right here. The number of therapies that we have to treat the other half, the reperfusion injury, is zero. Zero. We have nothing to treat reperfusion injury in, in any context, in the heart, in the brain, and wherever. And that's another area of research that I'm, I, I, we're working on. Um, I'll give you the very short version of it where um, we have repurposed a set of cancer drugs called HDAC inhibitors um, that are used for Cesare syndrome and rare cancers and have figured out that they provide a, a benefit in terms of reperfusion injury. Um, in a paper we published a few years ago, we extended that into a large animal model where we randomized rabbits to get one of three treatment arms where they got, they got drug, Varinostat or Saha, a dose here, a dose here, and another dose after reperfusion. So they were loaded up with drug 
and, uh, and then injured. Another arm where they received placebo or vehicle injections and got drug only at the time of reperfusion. This is a, an experimental arm that asks a biological question. Can we impact the biology? It has no clinical relevance, right? It's like treating somebody on Monday because you know he's going to have a heart attack on Tuesday. It, may, it makes no sense clinically. This arm is the clinically relevant one, and this is where we uh, delivered the control. And to summarize a lot, I will, I will tell you that the um, the uh, decline in the, air, the uh, infarct-related region versus the area at risk, the, the size of the heart attack, is mitigated um, whether the drug is delivered pre-injury or even at the time of injury. You can actually wait an hour after reperfusion to deliver this. And this is, this is work that we've been doing for a long time and has been replicated by others. And, I, and um, for example, the decline in EF, or fractional shortening, is mitigated even if you deliver this drug at the time of reperfusion. So I, I I'm happy to tell you that we're actually gearing up to launch a clinical trial in China on this, where we're going to deliver this drug um, to patients who present with a STEMI. It, we, had to, we had to go through a, a lot. To, we had to resynthesize the drug in China for some reason. And, and, but we're now gearing up to do this. We, we now have formulated an IV formulation where we're going to do an experiment in human beings presenting with STEMI, where at the time of reperfusion we deliver this drug or we deliver a, uh, a vehicle to see if this, which we've now seen in, in a number of different models, pertains to the human context. Of course, taking a pristine coronary artery in an animal and tying it off with a suture is very different than a ruptured atherosclerotic inflamed plaque in, in a human being. And so that's why we have to do that experiment in people, and hopefully we'll start enrolling in the next couple of years. So where, what are we going to do about all these challenges? Where are we going? This, I, I will submit to you, is all of heart disease, the different stresses that impinge on the myocardium, afterload stress, as in uh, hypertension or aortic stenosis, valvular disease, ischemia, reoxygenation, metabolic stress, which is emerging. If we go back to the drawing board, we have to remember the heart is a remarkably plastic organ. It can respond to a variety of stresses. A, a number of times in my career, it has, I've been astonished at how resilient and how plastic the myocardium is. Of course, it grows under settings of uh, physiological stress, like exercise or pregnancy. I used to think of this as a Lance Armstrong heart until we realized that was much more multifactorial. <laughs> <laughs> And so there's actually just one pathway that we know that leads to good heart growth. This is purely good for you. There are about a half a dozen pathways that lead to this type of heart growth, which is purely bad for you. And the differences between these two um, are several. First of all, the, the underlying pathways are different. There's a fibrotic component here. But importantly, this type of heart growth, if the stress is not mitigated, will uh, move such that the, the thickened wall becomes thin, the, thin, the, the chamber becomes dilated, and this, this, is, this syndrome that we've talked about, which I will submit to you again, is the future of cardiovascular disease ensues. Turns out, just for sake of completeness, I'll remind you that the heart can shrink quite a bit. The heart shrinks 1% per week in bed. The heart shrinks 1% per week in outer space. When you go into outer space, you have a redistribution of, of, of blood. The hardest job the heart has to do is pump blood 18 inches straight up into the brain, and suddenly that job is, is, is gone in, in outer space. That's why, if you remember long ago, that um, the uh, astronauts in some of these space missions were, had, a, had a, a long period of fainting when they came back, and they couldn't stand up. They had to be taken out of the, out of the cockpit uh, horizontal, partly because they'd lost volume, but they definitely had a, a, an atrophy response. And so NASA is very, very focused on this. If you're going to put somebody on the space station for six months or launch somebody to Mars and back, 
they are they're very keen to understand this. The strategy to cut to the chase is to try and provoke this. And so uh, they will, in outer space, try to provoke good heart growth to mitigate this atrophy response. What, what sport triggers the most good heart growth? If you're the head of NASA, what sport would you put on the space station? It's not golf. Running or biking? Running or biking? Rowing. Rowing. Crew. It's both isometric and isotonic. And that's why, until, until recently, uh, they had uh, rowing machines on, on the space station, because it, it triggers. Crew athletes have the most um, physiological heart growth. So um, I hope I have convinced you that the face of heart disease is different now than it was 20 years ago, and it will be different again. I will submit to you that there's never been a more exciting time to be in cardiovascular medicine. The challengers are evolving. We need to be smart and skate where the puck is going to be. It's going to be in the realm of diabetes and hypertension, I submit. And the tools at our disposal are absolutely Fantastic. We have more tools at our disposal now than ever. I, I've never been as thrilled to be in cardiovascular medicine as I am now. For example, CRISPR-Cas9, with which you're all familiar, which is a way to, to edit the genome. It has now become standard in my lab and many, many other labs. It's perfectly easy to do. You saw in the paper the other day that some guy in China um, did that to uh, human embryos, thereby setting off an avalanche of criticism. This, this individual uh, is not even a physician, he's a physicist, and um, he, he uh, did a terrible thing. You know, he, he, uh, these, uh, two, this, these embryos that turned out to be little girls, dad was HIV positive, so he came up with this notion, let's, let's inactivate the gene that is the HIV receptor. Well, okay, um, maybe that receptor does other things that we don't know about. Um, he didn't even sequence it to confirm that he did the right thing. He didn't sequence to confirm that he didn't mess up something else in the genome. So it was just an absolute rife, uh, rife with, uh, with inappropriate science. That said, the day will come when we will, we will be doing this. Uh, I think it's an inevitable uh, part of the way we'll disease, deal with a variety of different diseases. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, Duchenne muscular dystrophy are two that are, are emerging rapidly in, in, in cardiovascular disease. Um, for example, here at HCM, it, people are starting to do this. And there was a paper uh, a year ago in Nature where people worked out uh, the methodology such that you could, under the appropriate circumstances, we're not there yet, uh, edit the genome in a human being and, and ensure that you don't uh, it, you know, it trigger mutations that might be uh, unfortunate. I will submit to you in the next 20 years, we'll stop transplanting human hearts and we will switch to pig hearts. Pig pancreas, pig kidney, pig lung, maybe? Turns out pigs, their genome is full of retroviruses, and people are systematically removing them using CRISPR-Cas9 and rendering that tissue humanized so the HLA antigens don't look like a pig anymore. And I will submit to you that the day will come that you know that the number of people who need a heart transplant versus the number who get it is like five to one. We don't, we've been stuck at about 2,500 heart transplants in this country for 20 years. Um, whereas there are five times more people who would benefit from that. And I will subject to you, I will, if I can predict the future, I will suggest to you that porcine transplantation will emerge in, in our lifetimes. Inflammation, as we, I talked about this yesterday, has exploded in cardiovascular disease as an area now for the first time of, of, of targeted benefit as a bona fide therapeutic uh, target in a, in a whole host of diseases, including 
Hespes. And as, as has been shown recently from the Cantos trial a year and a half ago, the, the role of inflammation and atherosclerotic disease includes a slow trickle of inflammation that leads to atherosclerotic plaque development and then toward the end, an inflammatory response and plaque rupture. And again, this was shown by Paul Richter and his team from the Brigham that a, uh, a monoclonal antibody targeting IL interleukin 1 beta conferred uh, significant mortality benefit. The first time ever that an inflammatory target emerged uh, as, as, as therapeutically relevant. Precision diagnostics is another tool that we have that at our disposal nowadays where, you know, you can, take, you can take a white blood cell from any one of us or a fibroblast and turn it into a stem cell, an induced pluripotent stem cell, and then you can tell that stem cell, I want you to be a heart cell or a skin cell or a pancreas cell or whatever, and you can study each one of us in this room and try to understand how it is that each one of us is genetically distinct, and rather than treating populations for example, the one of the most egregious one is heart failure, where we take all a heart failure and throw it in one big bin and call it and treat it with ACE inhibitors and beta blockers and, and so forth. Um, rather than treating populations, we will move toward treating individuals. The, you know, the, one of the most prominent examples of precision medicine is our eyeglasses, right? My, my eyeglasses are, are precision for me and not for anybody else in this room. The day will come, I believe, that where we will, our medicine will emerge like this as well. Of course, we do that in cancer already. We do that in infectious diseases already. We don't, we're nowhere close to that in cardiovascular. And of course, you can take somebody's cells and put them in a dish and try to, to uh, identify drug targets. Patients with any of a, a bunch of different genetic disorders, for example, long QT syndrome, for example, and put them in a dish and test all the different drugs on Mr. Jones's heart cells in a dish and figure out what works best for him or her, develop new therapeutic targets, treat that person uh, in, a, in, a, in an individualized way. Digital devices, of course, there's a great deal of work in Silicon Valley and elsewhere around this where devices are emerging that we can, we can track any of a million things uh, in each one of us. Uh, I bet some of those will emerge with uh, relevance. I, I happen to think there's a fair amount of hype around this as well. But, you know, for example, um, Google now has a contact lens that will measure your serum glucose. So you can, uh, you can look on your, on, your app, on your phone and see what, you know, my, my, my serum glucose is uh, if, I'm, if I have diabetes. That's just one of uh, many, many of these. Blockchain technology, some people say, have said that blockchain technology is as transformative as the Internet, where it is a distributed, shared, encrypted way of storing knowledge. And that, you know, the entire knowledge of the human race can be stored in the cloud and each one of us can access that. Each one of us can access the entire electronic health record on every single one of our patients standing in their living room. Uh, such that we, that a democratization of information is, is, is in the offing uh, with this technology. Machine learning has emerged in many areas. Um, machine learning to evaluate chest x-rays and mammograms is, is front and center. It's emerging rapidly in echocardiography. Uh, it's emerging in the, uh, in the ICU and in the ED where uh, by evaluating a number of parameters that may seem trivial to us as physicians, sometimes machines can pick up patterns that, that, we, that we don't see. Uh, one, one example is heart rate variability in the NICU. As I understand it, it's very difficult to identify impending sepsis in a neonate, but if you track, there, there's pretty good evidence that a loss of heart rate variability in a neonate 
is predictive of sepsis 24 hours later. And uh, that, that's just, just one example where machines pick up patterns that we otherwise might not see. Big data and precision uh, omics and so forth uh, in, in terms of proteins and RNAs and metabolites and so forth is, has emerged certainly now with, uh, with incredible um, explanatory capacity. We've seen, we've seen this already, that rather than treating populations, we'll, we'll move toward treating individuals. I will submit to you that cardiac regeneration uh, will emerge in the next 20 years. Um, this, the sad, sordid tale of PR inversa at the Brigham is, is a, well, I think you're all familiar with this, which is, a, which is not regenerative medicine. That, that is a, a terrible, terrible thing that, that happened and is still unfolding. But um, the, I will tell you that most of us have a long since convinced if you take cells and you, stem cells or whatever, into the heart, they're gone in three days and they don't do anything. They make your EF go up like two points, perhaps by a paracrine mechanism. But they're, they're, in my opinion, there's absolutely no future there. However, there is a future, I believe, in tricking a heart cell into re-entering the cell cycle. They are post-mitotic. They divide once after you're born and then they don't divide, divide ever again. There is emerging data that we can now take those heart cells and maybe pull them back and have them divide again. There's also emerging evidence that you can take a neighboring fibroblast and ask it to turn into a myocyte. So those two things, those two things I think are very promising. They're way far from prime time, but I will submit to you that in the next 20 years, uh, there's a pretty good chance that, that that will have some promise. Can we reverse the aging of the myocardium? That the, senes the biology of senescence um, is important, uh, and there's a lot of interesting biology around that. Can we? Can we take an old heart and make it young again? We published a paper from a guy named Ben Levine uh, recently that if you take an old heart and you exercise it really, really hard, I mean, it, uh, interval training at, at the gym is pretty hard, you can take that stiff heart and turn it into a pliable, compliant young heart again with, with a very, very vigorous exercise protocol that is arguably unsustainable. But, it, but it's a proof of principle that the human heart, which stiffens with age, is plastic, as I showed you before, and can become compliant again under certain circumstances. The microbiome is another area that is a huge part of biology that, at least in my mind, is a huge big black box where each one of us is carrying three kilograms of microorganisms in our body. And I can tell you that each one of us has a different spectrum of microbiomes depending on who you live with or if you have a dog or do you exercise or what you eat. Each one of us has a different microbiome spectrum. And without question, it impacts many, many parts of our biology. We don't understand it very well at all, but I think we will. One of those is the consumption of meat leads to a, the, the elicitation of a molecule called TMAO, which promotes atherosclerosis. And that, that is, that's quite clear. That's one of the early first observations where the microbiome clearly impacts um, the, uh, the uh, atherosclerotic response. So in summary, the, the challenges in cardiovascular disease are legion. They are evolving. They're different here than they are in the developing world. Uh, they, are, uh, they are still such that cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of men and women. At the same time, the opportunities have never been better. The opportunities around lifestyle, genetic basis of disease, big data, many of the things that we've talked about are fantastic. And, and for the early career people in the room, I urge you to, to think about that in whatever domain you're in. The opportunities that we have before us, 
course, the challenges are, are daunting, but the opportunities are absolutely fabulous. Now, one of the challenges is that we in our country are bankrupting our society at, at the tune of uh, health care expenditure. Forty-three percent of Medicare is cardiovascular, and that's going up because people are living longer, thank goodness. But the, the toll on our health care expenditure is unsustainable, and it's not just in our country. So the solution to that, of course, we will always take care of patients no matter what it costs, but the solution is at the spigot, where the only way we're going to tame this, these diseases and the associated costs is by understanding mechanisms, understanding how diabetes interfaces with the heart, understanding cardio-oncology, all these different things, so that we can stem this tide and the, this enormous flood of cardiovascular disease. So with that, I will stop and uh, be happy to entertain questions. If I could follow up on your last point, I think we would all agree that there's a certain blood pressure at which we would agree that a patient should be referred for treatment or get treatment. We probably also would agree on a certain blood sugar. Do we have agreement about BMI? Where and when do you refer your patient or how do we engage them in the system? And this is something that the, uh, the societies around obesity are working on, but What's your take on how to get involved then, like we would with blood pressure or sugar or other conditions? It's a disease that World Health Organization and the U.S. recognize obesity as a verifiable disease, but we don't treat it like that. And, you know, I'm, I, I certainly don't have a solution to that. You know, I, you know, we do obesity pretty well in Texas, and, 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 and I... You know, I can't, I can't, be, you know, obviously trying to get our patients to deal with lifestyle is, is near impossible. You know, the definition of obesity is different. You know, the, the trigger of 25 and 30 is lower in China. It, it, for whatever reason, those poor souls, you know, are, are carry this, this challenge. So the definition of obesity, it, that alone is actually evolving. To, and to, but to your last point, I think it is incumbent on us to think about what is the right trigger. And, and we don't do that necessarily. That, that will evolve, I think. Blaine. So that was a great talk. Thank you. I want to stay, I want to go down lower rather than stay at the elevation of the, the large field. So I was fascinated by the preserved ejection fraction heart failure in that you seem like you're a therapeutic nihilist. And if that's true, how much of that 40, 43% of our healthcare budget in Medicare that's going for heart disease is being wasted in uh, preserved injection fraction in just a heart failure? Well, uh, I, I, gave, I gave this talk yesterday. I'm, uh, in my lab, we do a bunch of different things, but we're working on HEFPEF, and it's frankly the most exciting thing I've ever done in my career because we, we have, I, I will submit to you, um, identified novel mechanisms in HEFPEF that have never been reported before and that are, in fact, just the opposite of what the prevailing notion is. The, the short version is the, uh, uh, this is that the preclinical literature is littered and polluted with models of HEFPEF that are not HEFPEF like people get. And so people have been led astray by temporary HEFPEF. There's no such thing as temporary HEFPEF in people. You get HEFPEF and you don't develop HEFREF. 
you die of associated comorbidities, um, but it does not devolve into HEF-REF. And so there are models of HEF-PEF, including some that have triggered clinical trials that simply as a physician, I can tell you, are not what my HEF-PEF patients look like. So we developed a model. Um, the short version of this is that patients with HEF-PEF are obese with diabetes and have high blood pressure. So we made a mouse that's obese with diabetes and high blood pressure, and I'm here to tell you that those mice have HEF-PEF. They have HEF-PEF based on a 12-point checklist that we held ourselves to. And so we have uncovered a mechanism related to metabolism-related inflammation, such that INOS goes up between five and tenfold, and the, the creature is full of NO, NO flying all over the place. We've checked this in patients with HEF-PEF, we see exactly the same thing. And so if we lower that NO, the HEF-PEF gets better. Interestingly, you may know that the clinical trials, the current paradigm in HEF-PEF treatment is to raise NO, which is the last thing you want to do, the last thing you want to do. So, you know, this, this work is now in, in, in review at a, at a high-profile journal, and I, I really think that we, we're on to something, I believe. And so right now, HEF-PEF is incredibly challenging. All we can do is treat their blood pressure and their diabetes and hope they lose weight. But I, I, I will submit to you, I think that there's hope that, down the road. Can I just follow up on that? In China, you get diabetes at a much lower uh, BMI, right? So do they get, is that accompanied by more hef -pef? Absolutely. They, they call it lean hef -pef in China. Kelly? That was really a great talk. And, uh, <laughs> Sort of humbling to think about how exponentially our knowledge of clinical therapeutics and pathophysiology has grown and, and what that means for that exponential growth in the future in terms of managing chronic disease. As you say, as, an, as a next best option to curing acute disease. And I wonder if we could also think about what, um, what I, as a general internist, would argue is the first best option, which is prevention. Um, and and you know we've done we have really developed a healthcare system that's very good at the the former um, and not as good at at the latter at prevention. Um, so thinking about uh, instead of focusing on the cardiodiabetologist, the the primary preventionologist, um, particularly thinking about um, low and middle income countries, where we've done a great job of exporting our risk factors. Um, and, and there are a lot of big economic drivers for that. So how do we get the knowledge and the, uh, the economic force behind um, primary prevention uh, at a big macro level? I mean, thank goodness there are people like you working on that because, you know, I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, we could cure a lot of this if we could, if we could prevent these comorbidities. You know, we can treat hypertension with our eyes closed. You know, obesity is challenging for, you know, for all the reasons that you elaborate. I, you know, I, I will tell you that the corporate influence is, is not, uh, not a small one. Um, you know, the notion of, you know, oh, we're, we're working to deal with malnutrition is, is something that one could question. And, you know, and, but, but if you go to China, you know, yeah, of course they, they have now assumed a middle-class lifestyle. They, 
you know, they don't they don't snack on potato chips all day, but yet they still have put on a little bit of weight, and it doesn't take all that much. And of course, they they drive cars just like we do, and you. Um, you know, the, the government there, I, w I will say, is, you know, I'm not here to defend the Chinese government, but they, they definitely are waking up to this, including their, their issues around air pollution and so forth. But um, you're absolutely right that primary, if we could prevent this, then, then that would be the, the, the easiest solution of all, if we could find a way to do it. Yeah, just to follow up on that, Joe, this is a global epidemic, as you noted. There's a, a lot of things we need to be considering, uh, whether it is uh, local governments and regulatory agencies across the world, ministers of health, instituting policies, whether it's taxes on sugar-laden beverages, smoke-free environments. You know, that needs to be tackled almost on a country-by-country -country level. And in addition to that, the other part of this is patients being able to get access to, to care, affording the care like they cannot do necessarily in China, accepting the care that's offered to them. Uh, now, there is no global solution. Yep. It's, it's packing this thing. Yeah, so you're right. So. Here, another commercial for circulation. We launched something called Circulation Global Rounds, where we are hopping around the, country, the world. And what we've done, let's see, we've done Chile, India, Japan, uh, South Africa, Egypt is on the works. And we're asking, you know, what does it look like in your country, and what are you doing about it? What are the challenges you face? What successes have you had that we could learn from? In the country of Chile, they, they package food with up to four black stars, sugar, calories, salt, saturated fat. You can have up to four of those. And those, those scarlet, those black scars have to be a quarter of the size of the image. It can't be up a little corner. It has to be a quarter of the size. And it changed the way people eat in the country of Chile. They say that, you know, little kids would, would see mom pulling something off and say, no, mom, don't, that's got four stars, put it back. And, and the industry has responded. You know, we used to have four, now we're down to three. And so it has made a difference. I'm sad to tell you that the new uh, conservative government in Chile has revoked that. It was working. It was working, an incredibly clever idea. In fact, somebody, one of the people in my lab who's from Chile was involved in that, it turns out. And we wrote this up, I think it was in New York Times too, but uh, they found a solution that worked. And then, sadly, they recently backed away from it in the country of Chile. Thanks for a wonderful talk. I wonder if I could ask you to go back to the model in your lab that you're obviously so excited about with the INOS and the high circulating levels of nitric oxide. And could you speculate maybe even this early on how, from a pathophysiology point of view, high levels of that might lead to this condition? Because... Obviously, people were thinking of that as a therapeutic maneuver, but now you're stating that it, it looks like it may be more involved on the causal side rather than the therapeutic side. How do you think that might be playing out? So um, there you can make NO from a variety of enzymes, as you're well aware. Um, and people have been focused on ENOS, and that you know ENOS-derived NO may be a little bit on the low side, and so let's replete it. There have been many clinical trials testing that. And each one of them has failed. In fact, not only have they failed, but the patients who received NO repleting therapies got worse. It made them worse. 
Sildenafil, Isordil made them worse. People, I think, have not recognized that INOS was lurking in the background, that an that inflammatory response triggers a five to tenfold increase in the abundance of INOS. And there is NO all over the place, S nitrosylating a whole smear of proteins on a Western blot. There must be hundreds of them. We've looked at one so far, and that is IRE1-alpha involved in the unfolded protein response. It is S-nitrosylated and inhibited and doesn't do its splicing job, leading to downstream uh, problems. And so that, that in, in our hands, uh, we're pretty convinced, it participates in the pathophysiology of it. Is it everything? I'm sure it's not. We've only worked so far on the cardiac myocyte. HEFPEF is a circulatory system-wide disorder. It is not just a heart disorder. In fact, some people think the H in HEFPEF needs to go away. <laughs> it's not just a heart thing. Um, and so one of the um, hypotheses we're testing is that the reason it's a circulatory system-wide disorder is because that biology that we're teasing out in the heart is occurring in endothelial cells all over your circulatory system. That's still a hypothesis. said something. The unfolded protein response is a very pro-inflammatory stimulus, right? So the question is, in your mouth, is there increased levels of inflammation? And uh, is that sort of, are we circling back to the Cancanin map? Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Um, this meta-inflammation the biggest part we see is this dramatic increase in INOS. We do see a, a number of other cytokines going up. Um, there's a little bit of an infiltrate, but you know, We've only looked at, at HEFPEF at one time point. You know, it could be that you know, it evolves over time. In fact, I halfway think it is. In fact, we wrote a grant not so long ago where we tried to get three cardiologists, HEFPEF docs, and three immunologists together um, to talk about this because I'm pretty convinced the inflammatory element in HEFPEF is, is playing a significant role. But, but it's enormously, there's a tremendous amount of work yet to do on that. Okay, well, join me in thanking Joe for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.